0: oftentimes say that if you really like have a harsh analytical intellectual approach to a musical it's so easy at that point to say well the story is flimsy and the characters are cardboard and it's stereotypical this and that and i just kind of nod and smile say yes i'll take that as a given that so many musicals are like that and in the standard musical what is the story the story is what occurs between musical numbers (laughs) and so in the case of of cabin in the sky yeah i can pick it apart in various ways just kind of go like this with it But, you know, once you then get to a musical number, it's all worth it, isn't it? It's like, well, so what if that's like a flimsy excuse to set up a musical number? We're here for the music, essentially. And the film does deliver on that level. And and again, just to see so many great performers makes the film itself worthwhile.
1: Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver.
0: I'm Mike Giuliano.
1: And for today's show, for Black History Month, we are going to talk about Hollywood films from the 40s. Mike, how do you want to start us off in terms of framing the films that came out in the 40s and how African-American actors were able to perform in them? Just give us a little background. Well,
0: I once taught a course on African-Americans in cinema, and these are all decisions I had to make as to obviously which films to show and how to frame it, how to present it. And one of the motivating thoughts was so often in the classic studio era, the 1930s and 1940s, where there were Black performers in Hollywood films, it was very much in subordinate roles, literally. I mean, the maid, the the Pullman Porter, oftentimes treated for comic relief, very stereotypical. Not often that you would have somebody in a featured role, much less a starring role. So the presentation in standard Hollywood films was mostly one of of no presentation or marginal presentation, if you will. And that's something that we illustrate and and talk about in, in a course like that. But there are times where there are some breakthroughs, if you will. And for today's show, we're going to focus on two Hollywood musicals from 1943, Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather. And then we'll later on in the episode talk about a film called Pinky. But anyway, in terms of these musicals, what's notable about them is that they're unusual. These are all-Black casts. It's an all-Black world, if you will, if I can put it that way, even. In other words, like you don't even have white performers. And here's something worth noting in that respect. First of all, that you've rarely had films like that in Hollywood. But then secondly, the issue of how Hollywood dealt with black performers in film in terms of the exhibition circuit. For instance, most often in a Hollywood musical, there would be, you know, black stars, you know, major, you know, jazz and big band performers and so on. But how would they be presented? Well, typically, if you have like a musical variety show type format for a musical, you'd have a black performer come out and do a great number. But then the thing was, in terms of exhibition practice, The Hollywood studios knew that Southern theater owners in particular were really nervous about that. And so what was routinely done was if there was a Black performer featured in a musical segment, that entire segment might be cut. I mean, literally just cut when the film was shown in Southern theaters. That's not always the case, but it was often the case. So what's notable about Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather, produced by two different studios, MGM and 20th Century Fox, was it was a take-it-or-leave-it thing. In other words, it's an all-black cast. You know, you're not going to start cutting scenes because it's an all-black cast. What's really, I think, quite impressive there is the fact that the film did play nationally. Most theaters were showing it. It did have enough crossover appeal, if I can put it that way, that the films financially did reasonably well. And so that was encouraging. And yet these are exceptions to the rule, if you will. You don't get too many. What you get more often is, for instance, later in the 40s, there's a film called New Orleans, 1947. It's again, you know, an all black or mostly black cast and so on. The reason I mention it right now is how blacks were presented in film. It's the only film appearance by Billie Holiday. Think about how striking that is. And in it, she actually has a production number with Louis Armstrong. My gosh, who wouldn't want to see that? Billie Holiday and Louis Armstrong. But you know, so that's like on the one hand, in a positive sense, to have that presented in a mainstream Hollywood musical. On the other hand, and it's, it's a considerable other hand, her character in that film, Billie Holiday, plays a maid. Imagine the insult of that. This great performer, you're going to put her in a movie. What's her role? She's a maid. And so you're always up against this issue of there's some positive and encouraging signs and yet, and yet, there you go. So in terms of this this frustrating aspect of Blacks in in Hollywood in the 30s and even more so in the 40s, in 1984, I interviewed Lena Horne, who, who was one of the stars of Stormy Weather. And she and I talked about this extensively. And she was very frustrated in Hollywood because the joke, and it wasn't such a funny joke for her, was that in Hollywood musicals, in most musicals, you know, MGM musicals, let's say, she'd come on to do a specialty number or two, which could be cut from Southern theaters. And the joke, as they always put it, was they would tell her, just lean against the pillar and smolder. It was just, the, you know, she had this sultry image, come out and do your number and look great, and then you're off. And she said there was one reason why she finally left Hollywood or Hollywood left her was because it was so frustrating. So when I asked Lena Horn about this, I'm going to give you a direct quote from her. This is one of the things she told me. What racism I experienced was par for the course, but it was bad for me because like Jackie Robinson in baseball and Marian Anderson in opera, I was breaking through. It is difficult being a first, a token.
1: That is really powerful. Now, Mike, these first two movies we're gonna talk about came out in 1943, but I think we need to at least cast a glancing eye over Gone with the Wind from 1939 because of it's such a famous movie and, you know, the portrayal of Black actors and the Academy Award for Hattie McDaniels. How does that set the stage for what came after in 1943?
0: Well, you know, in the course I taught about African-Americans in cinema, I held up two films as examples of Hollywood's treatment of not just Black performers, but obviously by extension, Blacks in society, that cultural mirror. And we watch an excerpt from the most notorious of, of all American films, Birth of a Nation, and we talk about what's called lost cause ideology, namely, you know, the South lost the war in 1865, and yet, ironically, a painful irony, it sort of won the war of public opinion, and at least in terms of white public opinion, in later decades. All the recent disputes we've had over Confederate monuments and so on, those monuments were put up in the late 19th through mid-20th century. And a lot of that lost cause ideology actually is something that manifests itself through Jim Crow laws and Confederate statues and so on. A lot of that manifests itself in the the, the late 19th and again, well into the 20th century. That is actually dovetailing with Hollywood film history, because what you'll find is when Hollywood does make movies that deal with the Civil War or with anything of, of that ilk, it, it, it's just—I mean—I'm laughing because it's so bizarre. Is that it? Typically, takes the Confederate side, if you will. Gone with the Wind had been an enormous best-selling novel. It's very much from the the Southern point of view. And so, when the movie comes out in 1939, it's again just now in, in Birth of a Nation. It's a very virulent presentation. In 1915, it's very much, you know, from the Confederate stance. And indeed, most of it's set during Reconstruction. The heroes, quote unquote of Birth of a Nation or people on horseback in white hoods. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan is presented as the heroes riding to the rescue to save specifically white Southern womanhood, if I can put it that way. It's just so jolting. It's just so disturbing. All, and I don't want to get too sidetracked in discussing Birth of a Nation, but let me just in short form, put it this way, in terms of Hollywood's treatment of Black performers. And in my usual long-winded way, it does double back to your question. So in Birth of a Nation, you have the lost cause ideology presented in a kind of virulent fashion, really ugly, really disturbing. And so much on the soapbox for the white Southerners and all that it's a political tract. It really pushes it that way. And it's just it, it just creeps us out. And, and again, not to get into an extended discussion of the pluses and minuses of a film like that, but there it is for our purposes now. That's 1915, Birth of a Nation. Jump ahead to your question, which is 1939, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind subscribes to the same lost cause ideology. It's very much from the Southern perspective. It's in a relatively benign, and I feel like I have to put quotation marks around most of these words. It's relatively benign relative to Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation is so virulent. Gone with the Wind does, you know, for all its drama, does have a a more benevolent, and I hate to even use words like that, but if you watch Birth of a Nation and then you watch Gone with the Wind, you see the point there. It's the same Lost Cause ideology. It's softened a bit. It's prettied up, if you will, a bit. It's highly romanticized. That's what Lost Cause ideology is all about, not the actual Civil War and Reconstruction, but this highly romanticized Moonlight and Magnolias, as they oftentimes called it, vision of the old south that's what you get in gone with the wind that's typically how it was presented and this is really now finally to your question which is that when you do get uh, black performers in a hollywood film and no film was bigger than gone with the wind right and this let me another quick sideline the top grossing film of all time in the silent film era was birth of a nation the top grossing film, when, when was it finally taken off its throne by another film? Another film about, about the lost cause, Gone with the Wind, 1939, that became the box office champ. So again, even though the South lost the Civil War, ironically, painful irony, it sort of won the war of, of public opinion or public taste, if you will, at least in terms of the, you know, the mass white public. And that's, again, taking us back to Gone with the Wind. When you watch Gone with the Wind, how are the Blacks as characters presented? And again, we, we can't take all the show to talk about that, but think about Hattie McDaniel. She is the first black performer ever to win an Academy award, you know, for her role, but, you know, playing what? Well, these, these are slaves, servants, maids, butlers on and on that way. And, you know, that's in terms of the economic chain, but you know what? They love the master typically, you know, in, in a film like that, they are devoted servants, they're faithful servants. And they're oftentimes as with the butterfly McQueen character, in that film used for comic relief. And so that's typically how Hollywood films would use such performers. There are some encouraging signs of change as you get into the 40s, because there are some progressive Hollywood producers and directors. I would point actually to Dooley Wilson, who in Casablanca in 1942, he plays Sam, the piano player. When you know Humphrey Bogart says, play it again, Sam. You know, that's actually, you know, what we know him for. But the reason I want to talk about Dooley Wilson there is the fact that he is someone who is friendly with and respectful of the Humphrey Bogart character. On the one hand, it's an employer-employee relationship. On the other hand, they are genuine friends. And Sam, the piano player, late at night, can sit and talk eye to eye with Humphrey Bogart. And he can sort of like, when I say tell him off, I mean in a friendly, loving way. Like boss, you know, boss, you can't do this or do it. But you know, that's really unusual in a Hollywood movie at that time to have a white man and a black man just sitting down late at night and having a heart-to-heart talk, and talking basically as equals who care about each other. That's and Casablanca is full of little things like that, where you get a sense of, you know, how it is being supportive, not just of the American war effort in, in World War II, but of a black character like that who's treated respectfully. As we talk about cabin in the sky and stormy weather, there's a, an incredible roster of talent in these films, and we're going to talk about individual performers. You know what? One of the actors we see is Dooley Wilson. In, in other words, there are some you know quasi breakthroughs that way, and you know that's why films like this you always have to bear in mind some aspects of the film may not hold up there. You know, in terms of whether. A lingering stereotype or this or that but you know push come to shove it's really encouraging to have films like cabin in the sky and stormy weather where it's an all-black cast and incredible performing talent and a measure of respect for this and and, and you know within the overall hollywood firmament that was kind of unusual and the fact that the films did reasonably well at the box office so when i use that kind of loaded word crossover that white audiences were going to, these weren't just shown in, in, in theaters that had primarily black audiences. These movies were shown in your local, and when I say your local, I mean, look at the neighborhood movie theater, you know, small town USA, right? These movies played widely. That's very
1: encouraging. You know, Mike, you, um, you actually led into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is that, you know, when you get to 1943 and movies like Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather, four of the actors from Gone with the Wind are in these movies. So, you know, Gone with the Wind was just work that they did. And then in 43 to four years later, their stories become, you know, to the forefront. But I do want to mention that I believe that both Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather were written by white men who were guessing as to what, you know, Black lives were like. So, you know, Mike, what do you think about that? You know, the, the working actor, you know, juggling these kinds of roles, moving into the 40s where you get a, a little more agency about the story. Cabin in the Sky is very much of a uh, morality tale where you have, you know, a religious overtone to it, which to me felt very much like It's a Wonderful Life, which would come later in about three years. What do you think about that, that they sort of jumped the gun with that kind of storyline?
0: Well, you know what, I tend to see it a bit differently. First of all, though, in terms of we've we've referred to this incredible lineup of talent. Speaking for the moment of Cabin in the Sky, you've got Vincent Minnelli directing for MGM. So it's top line talent. You're right. It's typically white talent behind the camera. This is, again, part of the, on the one hand, on the other hand, discussion that, that you have to have about Blacks in film in in the 40s in particular, you'll see great Black performers on screen, but typically screenwriters, directors, producers, they're almost all white. So when the films themselves seem a little uneasy or a little unsettled, you're not quite sure what to make of something, it's oftentimes, you know, as whites are presenting Black performers, that's a really important consideration if you go down deep in terms of how a particular scene plays or a character is written and so on. But very quickly, to start off, some of that talent in Cabin in the Sky It's Ethel Waters, Eddie Rochester Anderson, Lena Horne, Rex Ingram, Louis Armstrong, Manton Moreland, Willie Best, Butterfly McQueen, the the, the Hall Johnson Choir. These are all major pop cultural figures in the time. You're right, Marie. The talent pool there was clearly defined in terms of you'll get performers from Gone with the Wind who are known to the general public. Yes, they are fully employed. They are really popping up. It might be a demeaning subordinate role, but you know what? They're working. They're working actors. So, uh, you know, in cases like, you know, Ethel Waters, they are stars, actually, you know, white audiences as much as black audiences know and and like a performer like that. And where I I tend to look on it a little differently in terms of the storyline is there is a kind of quasi mystical spiritual storyline in Cabin in the Sky, basically, you know, having a fight with the devil over a man's soul. Now, that is material that's coming out of black southern folklore or at least it's filtered through a white sensibility of the, the people making the movie. And I actually see a film like that as looking back more than forward, though I realize you're absolutely right. If it's A Wonderful Life, it's a formula that still plays out. But the reason I say that is that material was already old-fashioned in 1943. That's going back to like, you know, late 19th, early 20th century stories and plays and this and that. It doesn't invalidate it. It just sort of places it. It's very traditionally based. It's very rural in a lot of ways. The film, Cabin in the Sky, is very rural in a lot of ways, and it's very old fashioned that way. But you know what? It's a tenacious line of, of, of folklore. So the fact that in both black culture and white culture, if I can put it as, as bluntly as that, you would have Cabin in the Sky, which is playing off of black folkloric traditions. Think of Zora Neale Hurston, people like I collecting the folk tales. I mean, she has no involvement with that film but that kind of uh, impulse to collect that material and, and to you know, make it known. And, but then you're right, when you, when you get to a post-war film like It's a Wonderful Life, sure, that's playing off of the same formula in a lot of ways. Plays off it a bit differently, perhaps, but the essential storyline's the same. I think actually, in some ways, Kevin in the Sky, for all the great talent in it, to me, it does, does seem kind of a little dated, a little creaky, kind of forcing it. But you know what? When, and this goes beyond you know, a black musical, quote unquote. This is more a matter of the musical. I oftentimes say that if you really like have a harsh, analytical, intellectual approach to a musical, it's so easy at that point to say, well, the story is flimsy and the characters are cardboard and it's stereotypical, this and that. And I just kind of nod and smile say, yes, I'll take that as a given that so many musicals are like that. And in the standard musical, what is the story? The story is what occurs between musical numbers. (laughs) And so in the case of of Cabin in the Sky, yeah, I can pick it apart in various ways or just kind of go like this with it. But, you know, once you then get to a musical number, it's all worth it, isn't it? It's like, well, so what if that's like a flimsy excuse to set up a musical number? We're here for the music, essentially. And the film does deliver on that level. And and again, just to see so many great performers makes the film itself worthwhile.
1: You know, Ethel Waters is absolutely incredible in Cabin in the Sky. I mean, what a voice. But I have to tell anyone listening to this podcast that you have to see stormy weather you have never seen so much amazing talent in one movie. It is absolutely breathtaking. The level of singing ability, dancing ability, just showmanship. It is such a treasure. I had never seen it before. I watched it to prepare for this show. Of course, I knew the song. But wow, you know, when you were talking about the level of talent that was involved in these movies, I had just convinced a friend to watch introducing Dorothy Dandridge and Dorothy Dandridge was married to one of the Nicholas brothers, which is like the pinnacle scene of the movie at the very end. You cannot believe what these two guys do. They are just unmatched in so many ways. So many of the performances have just you just can't get any better than this. You, it's just amazing what they did in that movie. But the person I was watching it with said, well wait a minute, was this was this a movie that was only popular with Black folks, or did white folks go, and did they enjoy it if they did?
0: There's so much to say about Stormy Weather. I actually use it in in the course I referred to earlier. It's such a great showcase for musical talent. Very briefly, in terms of what it's about, it's a biography, more or less, of Bill Bojangles Robinson, who's best known for the three movies he made with Shirley Temple in the late 30s. He's a little bit past his prime as a performer here, but still mighty impressive, I'll tell you. And so the the narrative framework actually is quite topical. At the very beginning of the film, he's sitting on the front porch talking to little kids. And it's like, well, you know, Uncle Bill, and the kid's talking to him. And he has a flashback where he recalls Black soldiers, including himself, fighting in World War I. That's crucial. This is a movie that comes out in 1943, a reminder of Blacks in uniform fighting for their country. The narrative bookends are, that's at the very beginning of the film. At the end of the film, there's a big concert, big surprise, there's a big concert in which there are young soldiers in uniform, but these are young Black soldiers going off to fight in World War II. This was, you know, there was a lot of communication between Washington and Hollywood to have Hollywood do its part for the war effort. This is significant. It's letting all Americans know that Blacks served their country. And during the World War II years in particular, if you read things like the Afro-American newspaper in Baltimore, so many stories refer to what was called the double victory. By that, they meant defeating Hitler in Europe and defeating racism in the United States. Now, you know, the first victory was achieved in 1945. The second victory we're still looking for, I suppose. But the fact that, you know, this was very conscious on the part of Hollywood to show its support and it's acknowledgement for what Black people had contributed to America. That's a big deal. It's not dwelled on the film. You know, the film doesn't really dwell on it, but you know what? It's there. You can't deny it. It's deliberately there for you to think about. Now, Marie, to your point there in terms of the amazing talent lineup here. So it's, it's Bill Robinson, really, and Lena Horne. You know, again, the storyline is is sort of a love interest between the Bill Robinson character and Lena Horne character, and she's a a nightclub performer. You know, it works well enough as a romance, but it's just really a showcase for the performing talent indeed. This film has 20 musical numbers in a really brief running time of 77 minutes. So what story there is, it's just sort of tossed your way. And it's like, okay, all right, let's get on to the next number. And the film does that. So here's some of the performing talent. And I have connections here just by way of people I've, I've met or in, you know, interviewed or at least seen in, in concert. Recently, we had another show where I was talking about Cab Calloway. You know, I saw him in concert late in life. You know what? When he came out in concert, the concert I went to, he was wearing a white zoot suit basically identical to the one that he wears in Stormy Weather. The audience went nuts because here's Cap Calloway, this great big band leader from the 30s and 40s. He comes out wearing that white zoot suit and, and, and spotlight on him. And oh my gosh, uh, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. And he does Minnie the Moocher and he does the Reefer song. And, and so here he is, you know, in Stormy Weather. Lena Horn, of course, does the title number Stormy Weather and a number of other songs here. A reminder, speaking of this small circle of, of performing talent, Stormy Weather, as a song, goes back to the early 30s. Who did it then and was known for it? Ethel Waters. She, at that time, people tend to think of her in terms of her later roles, like this one, or a member of the wedding in the early 50s and so on, where she has a stout figure, and she's she's just really grounded. She's, she's earthbound in a sense of moral integrity and just, you know, ethical substance, I mean, just a terrific presence. They tend to forget sometimes, and they're, they're startled, actually, when they see photographs or footage of Ethel Waters in the 1920s and 30s. You know, she was really like stout and, and, and grounded in, in later roles in all sorts of ways. In the 1920s and 30s, she was really thin. And at that time, you know, she was known as, you know, Sweet Mama Stringbean. I mean, she was a really thin performer, but she owned that number in the early 30s. In Stormy Weather, you have Lena Horne doing that number. And making it her own. That became her signature song. When I saw Lena Horn in concert, one of the greatest concerts I've ever been to, when she started singing stormy weather, I get really emotional. I just think I'm, I'm you know, gonna start crying or something. I'd get so emotional, even just thinking that. It one of the highlights of, of my concert going life was seeing Lena Horn live. And then I was invited to a reception after the concert, and there was Lena Horn still in full costume and makeup. And I said, My God. That is a glamorous entrance. When she came into the room like that, she had she had the most beautiful face. You couldn't be blamed for staring at her. I was standing like two feet in front of her and I just stared. I thought, oh my gosh, this is one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen in my life. So anyway, let's go through the talent roster. I mentioned Cab Calloway, you know, having seen him in concert late in life and in that tremendous zoot suit when he comes out singing well oh my gosh you can't ask for better than that lena horn as i mentioned the nicholas brothers fared and harold and and yes harold was married to dorothy dandridge i met the nicholas brothers late in life and, and what a treat i was able to tell them how much they meant to me and the fact that you know here you have these tremendous performers the number they do at the end of stormy weather is one of the all-time great musical theater numbers it's fabulous also in the, in the film, you have Fats Waller, Dooley Wilson, as I mentioned before, the great dancer, Catherine Dunham, and other people who are not as well known to us today, but they're all terrific. So the short thing, and I never say anything in a short way, but, but a short way of saying it is, it, it's one of the great showcases for black performers ever. I mean, you watch this film and as Marie said, I keep using the same words as Marie, it's amazing, one after the other. By the time you get to the end of the film, it's exhilarating. It's just one of the most fabulous musical films of all time, really.
1: And I think a lot of people have probably seen bits and pieces of it. You know, the Nicholas Brothers doing their descent down the stairs while doing the splits and just amazing, you know, leaps and feats of dancing choreography. It is truly breathtaking. You absolutely have to see this. Now, I I did want to mention that just in terms of the facts I've mentioned very briefly uh, Dorothy Dandridge, That Mike and I are doing a uh, film discussion series, and on April 8th at 7 p.m., the movie we are going to be talking about is Carmen Jones, which was the big movie that Dorothy Dandridge was in. So if you want to join us for those discussions, go to howardcc.edu forward slash film festivals to see the whole lineup of what we're going to discuss for the series and come join us to talk about movies.
0: And speaking of Dorothy Dandridge, when the movie Pinky was made in 1949, it's about a light-skinned black woman passing as white, Dorothy Dandridge and Lena Horne were considered for the role. But what happened? Producer Daryl Zanuck gave that role instead to a white actress, Jean Crane. And it's an example of how it's one of the so-called problem pictures of the late 40s, taking on serious social issues, and it's to be commended for that. But you know what? And you can't dismiss this. It's always in your mind as you watch the film. It's a white actress playing this light-complected Black character, and that's Hollywood for you, going for the box office at that point, because at that point, Gene Crane was a movie star. And Daryl Zanuck wanted a movie star in the film. And Elia Kazan, the director, didn't like Gene Crane as, as an actor. He said later they did what he could with her. But it's the major weak link in a film that otherwise has quite a bit of merit. What do you think, Marie?
1: Oh, I agree. It's it's a great picture about passing. And I want to use that as, that as a way to mention that in 2021, Sundance had a movie called Passing, directed by Rebecca Hall great movie. I think it's actually going to get some Oscar nods this year. But Mike, we are like in our last minute or so. I just wanted to make sure I asked you in terms of Pinky, how did you think that that compared with both versions of Imitation of Life?
0: Well, I think Imitation of Life is a stronger storyline in terms of either the 1934 version and 1959 version. They're both great films. And I think they hold up better. Pinky, has the same thematic material and works with it quite well in places. And Ethel Waters is, is you know, really, really terrific in it, and so on. But again, the reason it doesn't hold up as well as either version of *Imitation of Life* is the fact that Jean Crane, she's, she's speaking of passing, she's passable in it. it. The performance is not bad. It's just kind of flat. It's a potentially great role for an actor, and she's not a great actor. She just does it well enough to get through it. Whereas the other performers in it are often like, you know, you've got Ethel Barrymore and Ethel Waters. You've got really some great actors in it, but who's the weak link? The title character as played by Jean Crane. So that, that's why it doesn't hold up as well as Imitation of Life.
1: Great answer, Mike, and you really summed that up beautifully. That does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you there. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.